This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 17. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, we travel to a wildlife sanctuary in southern Kenya for a close look at some people who are trying to do their part not only to save the planet from global warming, but also to protect and maybe save some endangered elephants, giraffes, and lions from a horrible death at the hands of animal poachers. Reporter Amy Yee joins us to talk about an effort called Wildlife Works. Amy, welcome. Thanks for having me. So set the scene for us. Uh, Describe this part of Eastern Africa and tell us how you heard about the wildlife organization and why you decided to travel there. Yeah, so Wildlife Works is a nonprofit that's located in southern Kenya. It's uh, very close to a big national park in Kenya called Savo, and that's the biggest national park in Kenya, and it's, it's huge. It's about the size of whales. So um, interestingly, there are two sides of Savo. There's Savo East and West, and in between the park, Um, There's a highway, a national highway that runs through it to the capital, to Nairobi. And there are people who live and go about their daily lives uh, basically in this corridor. That's a very large area, but they're in the middle of what's a wildlife crossing in uh, Kenya's largest national park where about half of the elephants in the country live. So about 12,000 or 13,000 elephants live there. So uh, I heard about this um, nonprofit from some environmental contacts in Nairobi, and I met them at what I thought would be the tail end of the trip. I had already done a bunch of reporting about wildlife, crime, and poaching, did three or four other articles, and heard about this near the end, and didn't know too much about it, but thought it sounded really interesting, um, partly because of where it was based and then what they're trying to do, which we'll, we'll discuss. Um, So I went down there without knowing that much, and I thought I would be there for a few days, and I ended up staying there for a few weeks. So I got a really good glimpse of uh, what life is like on the ground there for people who are living in this wildlife corridor. Um, So basically, I just took a bus from Nairobi and got on the bus and uh, got dropped off on this like uh, dusty two-lane highway and then was introduced to Wildlife Works uh, from there. The story of Wildlife Works, uh, this uh, nonprofit, is quite a saga. Um, It was founded by an American safari tourist? Uh, Yes, um, in a way, although he was a bit more than that in the end. Um, So this man named Mike Korczynski, who is British by birth but has lived in the U.S. for a long time, he went on a safari in central Kenya, like many people do. Unlike other tourists, though, he was really struck by how people were living. So he would see a lot of armed guards, armed um, rangers with their guns and whatnot. And it seemed to him quite an aggressive situation. So he wanted to know more about it. And so he asked to see more beyond the boundaries of this reserve. And so when he went off the beaten track, you know, not to look at wildlife, but to actually look at how people were living. Um, what he saw was, uh, you know, a lot of people um, living in poverty, 
not benefiting from these expensive safaris and a real divide between the local people who were living there and this sort of aggressive situation. Um, I think he called it like fence and shoot conservation. Um, I believe that's what he called it. And so this sort of struck him as a, a strange scenario and he wanted to do something about it. And this was quite a while ago, right? He, uh, he was there in the early 2000s. Right. Um, I believe he, was, he went on that safari in 1997. And uh, Wildlife Works was started either later that year or in 1998, so fairly soon after he did the safari. His organization, Wildlife Works, really had some bumpy times uh, before uh, a United Nations program came along called RED. Uh, that's RED with two Ds. What did the initial stand for and what does it do? So the initial plan for Wildlife Works was just to do tourism. Um, you know, there was like a small tourist lodge, so that employed some people for, you know, guests who wanted to spend some time in the bush looking at wildlife. And then there was a small garment workshop employing um, seamstresses and tailors, and they were making clothes that were being sold to uh, fair trade organizations in the U.S. and um, possibly in Europe. But, uh, you know, that business was a bit unstable. You know, you had um, the attacks of September 11th happen, 2001, Tourism took a nosedive. So they were just getting by at that time, and there were about 30 employees. So Mike Korczynski, he, he heard about this program called RED. And so RED stands for, uh, let me get it right, Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation. Basically, a, it's a framework that was established at a UN meeting um, several years before so the basic premise is this, that poor countries will get a financial incentive not to cut down forest, and that financial incent- that money comes from richer countries, let's say the U.S. or Europe. Um, so the idea behind this is that if you're a poor person living in a, a forested area, in Kenya most people rely on wood for cooking. And so if you've ever been in a rural area in Africa, um, people rely on just cutting down timber that they find. And if you have a, you know, this free resource right there, that's what you're going to do. Um, they also rely on um, making charcoal and selling it, and that's a source of income. And so charcoal, this, this, I'm going to take some time to explain it because I didn't even know what it was until I got to Africa. Um, so charcoal is made by cutting down trees and then burning them in these underground pits using wood from other trees for days, like two or three days. So it, you need a huge amount of uh, wood to make charcoal. And so it's made in a way that carbonizes the wood into what we know as charcoal. And this burns longer and hotter than, than wood. And so uh, people use this for cooking and then they also sell it. So there aren't many ways to make money. And so charcoal making is a major way. One, because people don't have any other fuel for cooking. And two, they don't have many other forms of income. So this leads to deforestation. And when you cut down the forest where animals live, that's going to be a major problem when you're destroying their habitats. 
um, deforestation also leads to um, the drying up of the land, basically, desertification. We don't have trees, the groundwater can't be absorbed, dryness of the land, it's, it becomes less fertile, can't farm. So huge problems all related to the fact that there is no other abundant source of uh, cooking fuel. And also that there are no, that there aren't many other ways to make money. And of course, uh, deforestation in in uh, in the big picture leads to climate change. There aren't the trees to uh, soak up the carbon uh, that uh, then just gets into the atmosphere and and uh, and leads to planetary warming. That's right. So uh, when you're looking at uh, the link between deforestation and uh, global warming, so when you have forest, it doesn't only suck up carbon, you're also keeping carbon that would otherwise be burned from being emitted into the atmosphere. So imagine the um, smoke that you would get from burning down a forest. Um, by keeping it as a tree that's growing, you're, you're sequestering it, you're keeping that carbon out of the atmosphere in the form of emissions. So um, the UN Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, it's UNIPCC is the acronym. Uh, in 2004, I believe, that report, they put out uh, reports every four or five years, that report said that um, emissions from deforestation accounted for 17% of global emissions. And at that time, that was more than the global transportation industry. So uh, it does more than just sort of, you know, um, suck out some emissions from exhaust. I mean, it's it was a major source of um, of greenhouse gas emissions. So the the next report from IPCC said um, it was about 11 percent um, that of global emissions that came from from deforestation. So. I want to just put out those two numbers, but but the upshot of that is just to say that um, deforestation is a major source of emissions, and we might not think about that. We might just think, oh, it's cars and the exhaust or coal-burning power plants, um, but the act of cutting down trees, either burning it or uh, taking it out of a, an ecosystem where um, you're countering emissions, that's also very destructive and contributes to global warming. Right. So by uh, limiting this uh, deforestation in the wildlife sanctuary, the organization you wrote about, Wildlife Works, is actually uh, reaping some uh, financial benefit for the people who live in the area. Yeah, that's right. So the idea that I, I mentioned before Local people need some kind of financial incentive. Um, if you're a poor person uh, living in, you know, this dry bushland bush area, um, why wouldn't you cut down a tree so that you can cook a hot meal for your family? Now, this sort of system called RED, um, it's sort of a uh, an agreement across many communities to say, if the forest remains intact, we will pay you at the end of that after we measure in a quantifiable way that the forest has not um, been reduced. So we'll give you money as uh, you know to to reward you for not cutting down the forest. So that's basically what the system is 
And meanwhile, uh, it's enabling the uh, local government to, or the uh, national government, to uh, hire more park rangers, right, to prevent some of this horrible animal poaching that's been going on. Right. So, so basically, because the community gets basically money for not cutting down the forest, Wildlife Works also gets money to run its operations and expand its operations. So before they, they launched this red project in 2011, by the way, this was the first red project um, to launch in the world. Before they launched, they had about 60 employees. And then now after Red, after the first year when they started to earn income from Red, and this you know, was divided into different parts for different stakeholders, but it was three and a half million dollars. So even if you um, parcel out the chunk that went to Wildlife Works and the community, it's substantial. I mean, you can do a lot with this few hundred thousand dollars. Um, considering this is a country where um, GDP per capita or annual income per person is is about a hundred dollars, so imagine how far several hundreds hundreds of thousands of dollars can go. So some of the money for the community it doesn't go to individuals, so it doesn't get pocketed by someone, but the village councils would decide how to use that money on their own, and most of the time that money went to building infrastructure related to water or roads. So water is a major challenge for people. They often have to walk miles to collect it. Um, So with that money, the red money, they often would build pipes or reservoirs or something to ease the burden on the community and give them access to clean water. The other thing that the community would use the money for was education. So it might be for rebuilding a school where there was no roof or no walls or um, refurbishing uh, you know, a dilapidated school. Um, so that's what the community would use the money for. Now, Wildlife Works itself, would they use that money to expand its operations, much like any business would use an influx of investment to expand. So Wildlife Works, their employee numbers went from about 60 before the Red Project launched to over 300. Perhaps that seems modest if you're in the US, but actually 300 employees, that makes Wildlife Works the largest employer in the entire county after the government and then after this large plantation that I saw. Um, so that just gives you know hundreds of people um, jobs and those jobs range. Um, so as you mentioned, um, Uh, A big component of that is hiring wildlife rangers. And so these are private rangers that are employed by Wildlife Works, not by the government. That's a separate organization. Um, But the number of rangers went from like 11 to now over 80. So what that means is that these rangers can, you know, obviously that's that's a huge jump and they can control a much larger area. Uh, before they didn't have any, they had one vehicle, which doesn't really help much if you're trying to patrol an area that's 500,000 acres, but they now have four vehicles. So what that means is that there's more patrolling of this very large um, area so that poachers can be controlled or uh, found and um, penalized. Um, so the the number of rangers was increased and number of employees um, uh, in other aspects of wildlife works was also increased. So um, greenhouse workers to grow seedlings to, to plant, 
the uh, clothing workshop was expanded. You know, this just gave a real boost to the local communities trying to put food on the table. You actually met a former poacher who uh, was now a park ranger. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, his name was Ayub Vora, and he is now in his 30s. And the head of the rangers proudly called him their best tracker. And the interesting thing about Ayub is that he used to be a poacher and a charcoal burner himself. And that goes for about 30% of the rangers that Wildlife Works employs. Um, so that might seem ironic, but on the other hand, these men know the ways of poachers and charcoal burners. And uh, Ayub's story illustrates uh, what can happen when people are given a chance to just work uh, uh, regular jobs. Um, so Ayub had come from an area out, very not far from where Wildlife Works is located, but outside of the protected area. So uh, he described to me um, starting to poach when he was a child, uh, maybe like 10 years old or so, and he would go with an uncle usually poach um, antelope, small antelope, or the medium-sized ones. Um, and so he, he was really good at it. And um, he doesn't have an education. And so, you know, when he grew older and he had his own family, there, wasn't, there weren't any real jobs available where he lived. So he still relied on, on poaching. And so imagine, you know, spending several nights a week in fairly um, treacherous conditions and making a few dollars. So I think that um, gives an idea of how little people were making. And he was caught in 2006 for poaching by Wildlife Works Rangers, and then he was handed over to the Kenyan authorities, and uh, he had a terrible experience in jail, and that really shook him up. So he went to charcoal burning. And so he became a charcoal burner, charcoal maker. So um, he actually saw a sign at a like a local village council, like an elder's house, um, um, sort of like the community bulletin board. And he saw a sign that Wildlife Works was hiring rangers. And so he showed up at Wildlife Works and expressed interest in the job. And these rangers, um, the head of the rangers was really surprised, but he, he was like, well, we caught you poaching, and you're, you're a poacher and a charcoal burner. Um, you basically, you know, what he was looking for was just a stable salary and a good job, and so they ended up hiring him, and he's now um, their best tracker, and his bushcraft, as they say, is supposed to be impeccable. Um, he knows every track. That's something else the head of security told me. And so um, he makes a stable salary, and they, they, the rangers certainly work hard, but um, it's a pretty coveted thing to just make a, a monthly salary where you know you're going to get X amount of money uh, for your work. Amy, in reading your piece, I was struck by how many pieces are interconnected. Uh, you have the forest itself, the trees that make it up, the animals and the people who call it home, all the economics you spoke about, and then this whole larger issue looming over us of, of uh, global warming. The story of Wildlife Works is uh, quite a hopeful story uh, in a lot of ways, but 
of course, this is just one program in one corner of one continent. Um, in the end, are you hopeful about it? Yes, I am. And I think it's important to, to recognize the complexity of the situation and what are the drivers of poaching and wildlife. I mean, that's an issue that people uh, are very familiar with now and they feel strongly about it and they want it to stop. But what's the answer to that? And if you unravel this question, poaching elephants by criminals, is a, it's a different story. But let's say this kind of subsistence poaching that I'm talking about, that's driven by poverty. And so people need alternatives to what they're doing. And they often don't, don't especially want to be doing this, um, like the story of Ayubura, the uh, poacher turned ranger. Um, so it's important to recognize what the drivers are of the poaching and also the deforestation. And so people don't always equate wildlife destruction with destruction of trees, but they are very much related. Um, personally, I think if someone came up with an idea to um, uh, find a, a, a clean, renewable way to supply cooking fuel, let's say like with methane from biogas, that would be a huge boost to preserving wildlife. And that's not something that one would normally think of. So the good news is that the forest in the project area um, where wildlife works, 500,000 acres, that has remained intact or it has even increased. Um, so that's very good news indeed. People who are in this area, red experts and climate change experts, they would want to emphasize that swaths of protected forest should be even larger. What Wildlife Works has done is a, a good example that that this project can work. Well, as our listeners can hear, it is a complicated story with a lot of uh, interlocking elements uh, and a very rich story. Amy, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about it. Thanks, David. Amy Yi is an award-winning journalist who was based in India for seven years and spent the last year reporting in Africa. She's written for the New York Times, The Economist, and NPR, and she's a former correspondent for the Financial Times. Her article about wildlife works in Kenya is uh, our case study in Undark this month at undark.org. Uh, there are also some wonderful images there to look at. Amy, thanks again. Joining us, as always, is Seth Manukin to talk about science in the media. Hello, Seth. Hello, David. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, so uh, we want to talk today about an article that just appeared in Undark by uh, Michael Schulson, uh, who uh, writes a couple of columns for us. Um, and uh, this column was about an emeritus scientist at Johns Hopkins University who came out with a controversial paper. Uh, can you tell us about it? 
So Dr. McHugh is um, now a, a retired professor emeritus at Johns Hopkins. He's a psychiatrist. He's the former chief psychiatrist at what is one of the country's most prestigious teaching hospitals. And at its at its core, what McHugh is saying is that the the sort of dominant thinking that gender issues, sexual orientation, gender dysphoria uh, is is biologically based. That people are to use a phrase, born this way, is incorrect. And while he is a psychiatrist, and this is an area that he has discussed in the past, in this instance, this is is sort of a, a perfect example of, of junk science. He took sort of half-baked anecdotes, uh, cherry-picked data, combined those with outdated theories, and did not supply any new evidence, but kind of put all this stuff, smushed all this stuff together to try and prove a point and a point that has been shown to be incorrect in, in many different ways in many different times. It's notable that he did this and, and he published this in a way that was not peer reviewed. And it, it seemed to be an effort to make a political point, not in the Democratic Republican term, uh, use of the word political, but uh, but a cultural political point, and not because there was any new research or insight that, that he's had that is really deserving of attention. Yeah, and in today's climate, uh, where everything is so partisan, it's just so easy to seize on a paper like this and use it for your own purposes, whatever they are. Yeah, and that's certainly what has been done here. It's been used as evidence that bathroom bills are misguided. It is something that especially the right-wing media has really seized upon and, and, and grabbed hold of. But this is something that, that happens on both sides of the political spectrum. So I think the, the fact that his claim, and again, this claim that was published in an unpeer-reviewed journal, or it was an unpeer-reviewed paper, that it has gotten this attention, I think, is is evidence of something that oftentimes happens with professors, with academics at prestigious institutions, and in many other cases with Nobel laureates, uh, of which McHugh is not one, but it's, it's something oftentimes Nobel laureates are asked to speak on issues that are not really their topic of expertise. And I think it's a mistake that we make in the media, which is that we assume that because someone has an impressive title or has a, a certain affiliation, that then we should take them seriously, regardless of what they're saying, of what topic they're talking on, or of what evidence they have to support those claims. Let's uh, talk about uh, one other type of media uh, that we may not even really think of as media, uh, email. Um, a really interesting piece in The New Yorker uh, this month by uh, Nathan Heller. Tell us about it. So the piece looked at this enormous trove of, of emails that came out of the Enron scandal in what must now seem like a very quaint and innocent time early in this new millennium, and hundreds of thousands of emails that were that were released from that. Um, and it really, the, the, the piece talks about various efforts since then to sort of make sense of these emails, not really looking for evidence of malfeasance, and certainly not anymore. That issue has been dealt with and settled. But using this as a, a, a sort of trove of information that reveals how we communicate, how we communicate in, in unguarded ways, how what has become this very, very dominant 
mode of communication. You could argue about whether or not it is now the dominant mode, but certainly one of the dominant modes of communication, how it's used and what it says about the ways that we interact with each other and the ways that we use language. Just a fascinating uh, kind of wealth of different uh, some of them quirky, oddball findings. Uh, the, the word oddball makes me think of um, the different <laughs> the ways. Ball metaphor. Yeah, the, yes. the, the, that uh, the, the word ball is used in in business communication. They talk about the ball game, and uh, it's a whole different ball of wax. And uh, the, the the way that that word is invoked is just uh, really interesting and fun. Including some that that seem to make you know very very little sense. There's one about I, th- I believe it's about ballpark where one email writer says um, I'll be over in your ballpark later this week. The quote is I will oh, no I will pretty much leave it in your ballpark about Friday night, um, which. Even when you think about it, you can sort of get a sense of what he's trying to say, uh, but is only very tangentially related to how one would actually communicate in English. So, yeah, it really is fascinating. It also made me think both about how I use email uh, and also, as we've seen both with journalists and in politics over the last 12, 18, 24 months, there are a lot of ways in which people working in media use email and I think continue to not be as careful as they might be. When I was in high school and I was working on my school newspaper and I was interviewing uh, a housemaster in my school, she said one of the ways that she tried to sort of gauge what she was doing was to figure out how she would feel if whatever was happening at that moment was on the front page of the Boston Globe the next day. And I think that would be something that we would, journalists, would be well served to sort of keep in mind when they're writing emails. When you're writing to a source or when you're writing to an editor or just anytime you're communicating about a story, what would it look like if this was on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow? You know, would it appear as if you were making deals with sources that you shouldn't be making or that you had biases that were infecting your work? And it can be very incredibly, incredibly difficult not to let that seep into email because email, I think, in in, in some ways has become not only a method of, of sort of instant communication, but a way that we can kind of instantly vent frustrations and emotions. And as we've seen over the last couple of years, that can be very dangerous. It's just too easy to use. Yes. And and, and, and too overwhelming. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, I, I oftentimes fantasize about declaring email bankruptcy um, and, <laughs> you know, being able to come in and just wipe out my my inbox. And I think one of the in addition to the kind of political climate, one of the main feelings of existential dread and angst I get every day is when I think about the, the, the piles of unanswered emails in my, in my inbox. Most of them from me. <laughs> Yours are, you're, you're, I always answer you, David. Okay. Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Seth, as always, thanks. Yes, thank you, David. Banff National Park is a stunningly scenic park 
in Canada's Rocky Mountains. As it gears up for a busy summer tourist season, the staff are working to remove fish from a popular lake near the town of Banff. It's part of an effort to curb the spread of a mysterious ailment called whirling disease that's spread by an invasive parasite. Molly Siegel visited the lake as biologists were hard at work removing the fish. It's a warm, sunny day in June at Johnson Lake in Banff National Park. Just a short drive from the town of Banff, this small lake would normally be busy with people. But today it's close to everyone, except for a team of Parks Canada employees. Oh, under that rock. My name's Mark Taylor, and I'm an aquatic ecologist with Banff National Park. Leading the team is Mark Taylor. He stands knee-deep along the shallow shore of Johnson Lake. He wears hip waders. And from the front, it looks like he has a backpack on. And he's holding a yellow pole. Uh, so what I've got in front of me is a, a long pole uh, with a, a circular ring at the front end, which is an anode. and. Uh, Behind me, I've got a tail, uh, which is a cable that acts as a cathode. It drags behind me, and the machine has a battery inside that's putting out an electric current into the water. The contraption is part of Mark's electrofishing gear. And no, it's not some tech-savvy form of recreational fishing. This is planned. They're trying to systematically remove every fish from Johnson Lake. They use gill nets throughout the lake, and the electrofisher in shallow water. So this is a, the electrofisher is a great tool for the shallow margins. So you can see um, this is shallow water here. Fish are really good at hiding under in the grassy banks. Uh, a gill net's not going to get fish out of, draw them out of the, the banks here. Emptying a lake of fish is a monumental task. So why all the effort? Essentially, Johnson Lake is sick. It's infected with whirling disease. The mud at Johnson Lake is a hot spot for the parasite that spreads it. The spores live in mud and need to find a worm host, the tubifex worm. When a tubifex worm eats the spores, they change into different spores in the worm's gut. The worm spits out these new spores that are hook-like and can float in the water until they attach to a fish. Infected fish sometimes have a blackened tail and spinal deformities that leave them swimming in a whirling pattern. It becomes harder for them to survive, and when they die, spores are released back into the mud, and the cycle begins again. One of the important aspects of the project is to quantitatively uh, show the decline of whirling disease in the lake and track that to a point of zero. So the capturing and, yes, killing of all of the infected fish in Johnson Lake is doing two things. First, it will eradicate all fish, native and non-native, so that the parasite can die out in this one spot. But more importantly, Parks Canada hopes doing this will stop the spread of whirling disease. Their biggest fear is that it would get into the nearby Lake Minnewanka. Bill Hunt is the resource conservation manager for Banff National Park. Uh, this summer, what we're working on is trying to actually eradicate whirling disease from the Johnson Lake Reservoir because of the pattern of human use we have here. And that pattern of human use, Bill Hunt is referring to, is the steady stream of tourists and locals who visit Johnson Lake in the summer for a swim, or a paddle, 
then hop into their cars and drive to Minnewanka, which is not far down a scenic road. Hunt and his team of biologists and conservationists worry about these people, especially the mud they could track from Johnson Lake to Lake Minnewanka. That diseased, spore-carrying mud. One of the streams that drains into the Minnewanka Reservoir is called the Upper Cascade, and it's home to um, several core populations of West Slope cutthroat trout. They're listed as threatened. These West Slope cutthroat trout live in a remote part of the watershed connected to Lake Minnewanka, far away from some of the other non-native species of fish. It's a pure and healthy population, and Parks Canada wants to keep it that way. One of the concerns we have here is that when you've got native species and non-native species, some of the non-native species like brown trout originated from Europe, where whirling disease originally came from uh, many, many years ago. And so they've got 80 years head start in terms of co-evolving co with whirling disease, whereas a native fish like West Slope cutthroat or bull trout is being exposed to whirling disease for the first time. Banff National Park isn't home to the only West Slope cutthroat trout. There are populations in other parts of Canada as well as the United States. But this specific group may be very important in the long run as water warms due to climate change. With generally colder glacial waters in the park, these fish may have a better chance of surviving down the road if they can survive whirling disease. For Undark, I'm Molly Siegel in Banff National Park. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.